truly believe that it's not systems that change people's individuals that work within it. And the first time I went into a police cell, I think I was 10 years of age. Yeah, 10 years of age was the first time I was locked out of a police cell. And I had no fear of the authorities. It was, it was just a game, yeah? It was just like a game of cat and mouse. And screaming at me, shouting at me, I was stripped naked, I was given a card, M33681 Jones, sir. And it was just all intimidation. And change programs to the prisoners. Yeah, and that was about also getting them to learn how to trust a system they fundamentally mistrusted. Hello and welcome to May Contain, the podcast Breaking the Sigma. The podcast started off breaking the sigma surrounding my food allergy. However, this year, I want to use this platform to break the stigma of other conditions and topics which are not always well understood. And it's a safe space where the guests open up about their own personal stories and struggles on the way in hopes that their stories will inspire you. If you can do me one massive favour whilst listening to the podcast, make sure to click that follow button. Honestly, it means the world to me. And if you're watching this on YouTube, the episode is out every Wednesday. So make sure to click that subscribe button. Honestly, I appreciate all the support. Let's jump into the podcast. Geffen, absolutely incredible to have you on the podcast. I mean, your upbringing been so challenging, what you've been through, and you could say traumatic kind of past. For the listeners, if they've not come across your story of obviously with being in the, the criminal justice system as well and kind of the incredible work you're doing now, could you do an introduction to yourself? Yes, my name's Geffen Jones. I've got a company called Unlocking Potential. Uh, I mainly work within prisoners, charities and local authorities. Uh, I do that in the UK. Uh, I also do that in America and also Australia. Uh, but the main aim of everything that I do is about breaking down the them and us narrative because uh, I truly believe that it's not systems that change people's individuals that work within it. Um, and I do that through sort of like uh, staff training, but also creating personal responsibility programs to people that are trapped within the system. So that's a bit of me in a nutshell, but I'm sure I'll say more about it later. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about that upbringing, you know, for yourself. Do you think a lot of it stems from that environmental of where you brought up to where people get to in life, that kind of the environment they're brought up in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is a thing about nature nurture. <clears throat> There's always been that, uh, uh, that, that, that debate. Uh, but I do believe uh, nurture is a big thing. Uh, and the nurture comes from the environments that you're in. And I think the environments can dictate uh, who you end up becoming at certain times in your life. Uh, so I remember a bloke once saying to me, he said this little rhyme I use it all the time when I work in prisons. It says, what you see, you learn. What you learn, you practice. What you practice, you become. But what you become isn't always what you're meant to be. Uh, and that kind of sums up what my uh, beginning of my journey was like. And then it was a, a, a process of trying to find out who am I really. I mean, if we go back some early years, I mean, where where were you brought up? Like, so I was brought up in the best city in the world, Portsmouth. Um, but yes, uh, got a great football team in the world as well. I will say that. <laughs> not not any team for agreement. I can't say I know how well they're doing, but um, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. We're top of the league at the moment. I won't say what league, but we are top of the league. But there we go. Uh, but yeah, so I was born in Portsmouth. So that was the city that I was brought up within. Uh, the city at that time was a naval city. It was quite a hard, tough city, you know. Uh, and I was born into like what many would call like a dysfunctional family. Uh, what I mean by that was my mum had come through the care system. Uh, so she was in children's homes. My mum also had some learning difficulties. And my father was an alcoholic, you know. So from a very young age, I weren't able to get the love, care and nurture that I needed to develop as a human being. You know, uh, social services were there from the day I was born. I would say you can probably find the first 35 years of my life in a filing cabinet somewhere, you know. So, yeah. uh yeah, so experiences, you know, it was a tough place to grow up with anyway, but I, all, all, all areas were tough in like the uh, 70s and early 80s. So, uh, yeah, but that's that's the city I grew up within. You mentioned your dad there being alcoholic. Was, you, was your dad around much? Because I know you've you've kind of spoke about your mum being there for yourself and your siblings, but was, you, was your dad around at any point in your early years? No, no, so that, that's a whole story in itself. Like you can go down rabbit warrants, yeah. my story. So, yeah, so uh, my mum had to flee my father when I was about two years of age. Uh, and that was the first time me and my uh, brother and my younger sister were removed and put into care. So my mum sort of got up one day and said she was going to the shop. 
and then she just never returned. Uh, and then we were put into a foster placement, and then we was then returned to me mum. Uh, I didn't see my father again at all uh, then, really, but then I did have a, a one encounter with him, and that was when I was 17 years of age, uh, and I was in a prison called Portland. Uh, I went too far off of my 18th birthday, uh, and I was also due some compensation because I'd had a bus accident when I was a kid as well. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I had a random visit, uh, and the random visit was me dad. And I'm wow. like, yeah, so the first time I met him, I was in a prison, Um Turned out my sister had found him. Uh, she had kind of let slip that oh, I've got this compensation coming. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, he turns up in the prison and offering me these uh, opportunities to go and live with him in Wales, uh, hence why I've got the Welsh name. But to be honest with you, it's too little, too late, and uh, I didn't take him out on his offer. Um, and then uh, a few years later, when I was about 26, uh, I found out that he died of cirrhosis of the liver. Um I had no interaction or impact with the man. So, like, you know, uh, I had no real feelings when he passed because, you know, he uh, he buffed me, if you want to kind of call yeah. it that. <laughs> you know what I mean? He impregnated my mother, but that was about it. Yeah. I mean, what what was that conversation? Was he sorry? Or was he apologetic when you had that conversation in the prison? That, to be honest, with you, I can't really... Re- yeah. I, I think I was, like, a little bit gobsmacked because, I, you know, it's like, you know, who is this bloke? And I, I was a little bit kind of curious and he had his partner there as well. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds terrible, but I remember, like, she just had quite, like, a bushy chin and I was just... <laughs> remember Concentrating just, on that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, yeah, I just, like, you know, and I think, if I'm honest with you, when he was talking about... Because he was talking about all these different family that we had in Wales, and I think the thing that I had, really, was that it was attractive... Yeah, because it was something I'd never had being in children's homes, anything like that. But I just had this thing of just like thinking, who are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to like just leave here and go to you. So yeah, yeah. So it must been it must been hard on your mum. I I had a guy on the podcast the other day called Julian, and he was his um mum was in a relationship um with his dad, and he was domestic. But it was really hard for the mum because financially she was like dependent on him. And then to get out of it, they end up becoming homeless and there's like crouch surfing for a while. Um, so it must have been really hard for your mum, obviously, to kind of go solo. And do you have three brothers as well, yourself and three brothers? No, so I had one brother and two sisters, but there's three chi- there, there's three children in, in total. Yes, yeah, so my mum became a single parent of four children. Uh, but, you know, she did have relationships, you know. So my, my, my younger sister, Sadie, uh, he, she, she's, her, her father sadly died in a road traffic accident. Um, and that meant my mum also had a nervous breakdown. And uh, she went into, uh, that was where we were then put into another foster placement. And that was probably when I was around about five years of age. Uh, but when we came out of that foster place, my mum was quite vulnerable as well, so she didn't always pick the best of relationships. Uh, and then there was another bloke called Richard that came into the house, uh, and he was like, you know, well, he was just a criminal, really, you know, so he yeah. used to steal ring cars and stuff like that. Uh, he was also quite a violent man, you know, uh, quite controlling to his mother. Um, you know, so, yeah, so she, she didn't do too well down. I think people prayed as well on her uh, vulnerability in relation to her learning difficulties. Um, and then after that, when, you know, I wasn't home then, I was in children's homes full time. But she had another partner called Dean and, and he was quite controlling as well and convinced her to move away from Portsmouth and go up to um, Norfolk, Kingsley. And she ended up becoming quite isolated and alone up there as well. But same what she did with my father she fleed came back to Portsmouth so yeah it wasn't an easy run for me mum um but in truth because I was so damaged myself as a child when I was growing up uh I had my own anger and resentment to me mum so I didn't actually start to develop a relationship with my mum until I was in my late 30s you know so it was quite a it was quite a journey really not really having that kind of nurture when you was younger I mean imagine it must have been quite difficult obviously being in and out of care homes you didn't really have you must felt quite unsettled was that right would you say yeah yeah so it was like you know so the the only person I really found that I was connected to was my brother you know me and my brother were like thick as thieves like literally uh and uh and we did everything together we played together we ran away together we stole together you know it was just kids being kids you know and we were quite unruly in the neighborhood but that was because we had no real kind of clear direction 
Uh, but when uh, Richard also as well, he used to beat on me and my brother as well, do you know, and uh, and he ended up going to prison when I was about probably about seven or eight years of age, and my brother was a little bit older. Uh, and when he went to prison, uh, my brother, because he's a little bit older and a little bit more angry, he started to uh, beat on my mum. Yeah, so my brother then started to be violent towards my mother. Um, and then one day I came home and, and he was gone. Yeah, and they put him in children's homes. And I remember on that day I lost the most important person in my life. And I literally started to ask social services to put me into care because I just wanted to be back with my brother. Yeah, I didn't want to be in this home. I didn't feel like I was connected in the highway. I had no real feeling or emotion to me, mum. I was clearly separated from my sister. So I was just kind of this like young nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy that was just completely lost and alone. Um, uh, I ended up kind of getting my wish. Uh, and it was funny, actually, because it was the corpse that ended up doing it. So uh, I got my first criminal conviction when I was 12. And I remember going into the courtroom and asking the judge to put me into care. Uh, the first time they didn't listen to me and they didn't ask the question why. Instead, they gave me a six-month conditional discharge. But I remember walking out of court and saying to my social worker, I'm going to keep getting in trouble until you put me into care. Yeah. And that's what I did. And a few months later, I got given what was called a full care order. I always think about the worst care order. I remember the order, but I don't remember that much of the care. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing was as well, because of I was very unsettled, my brother was very settled, they also didn't reunite me with my brother. So then what happened was I had another... Uh, a big issue in my head because I found myself in children's homes. I didn't want to be there because I wanted with my brother, but I also didn't want to be at home. So yeah. I was just kind of lost. I mean, yeah, imagine being like in and out. I mean, that kind of first kind of conviction when you you was eleven. I mean, was was you scared at the time, or was it was it? Did it just all feel normal to you? And obviously, with having such a traumatic kind of upbringing. Yeah, it was normal actually because I, I was doing a, uh, I was doing some talks last week to architects actually that uh, build prisons and uh, police stations and everything like that as well. And they, you know, the first time I went into a police cell, I think I was ten years of age. Yeah, ten years of age was the first time I was locked out of a police cell, and uh, and I had no fear of the authorities. It was it was just a game. Yeah, it was just like a game of cat and mouse, you know. Yeah. And uh and I think also as well, it's probably any attention was better than no attention, yeah, you know. Yeah. So uh yeah, so you know, being in a police station didn't bother me. And you know, I remember going to court for the first time and, and back in them days, because I was so young, you can't even sit in the dock. You used to have to sit in the front in these seats. But I remember yeah. having no fear of where it was that I was, you know, this was just my world. Like, you know, it's just yeah. It was a part of it, you know. It's the funny, funny thing is, as I got older as well, you used to go to the magistrates' courts. It was like a social, it was like a social event. Yeah, yeah, you see all your mates and all the different people that were all there. It was just that was that thing. What you see, you learn. What you learn, you practice. What you practice, yeah. you become. That would just became my world. I was going to say with with the kids, obviously, summer ages when there's obviously mingling with kids who also got convictions. I mean. Did they all come from quite traumatic kind of upbringings as well? Or was it all just kind of um, just getting themselves in trouble at a young age? Right? It was it was a bit of a mixture, yeah. really. You know, so I, I ended up kind of, like, I'll give you a bit of an idea. So I, when they separated me from my brother, there's a thing which is called like attracts like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I met a new friend and he became my best friend and his name was Michael Sullivan. Uh, and with Mike, you know, uh, when he was around about eight, nine years of age, his mum sadly died of uh, of cancer. So they went to his father and said, like, you need to take uh, responsibility and custody of your child. And his father refused. Not only did he refuse, but he left the country, went and lived in Canada. Um, and then that meant that Mike then ended up finding himself in the system. He truly didn't want to be with him, but he had nowhere else to go. And that was exactly the same as with me, you know. And uh, and, and there were lots of other kind of young people within there. And, and there was always something sitting behind it, you know. It might be parents were alcoholic. There was violence within there. There was criminality going on, you know. Now, we were just products of our environment, yeah. And then what happened was then, uh, because we were what was classed as beyond parental control, which means that the parent doesn't have the skills or ability to control that child, you then kind of get uh, put into the care of the local authority, care in loose bracket. Yeah. Yeah. And then what they do is they just mix you all together, you know, and it's like, wonder what's going to happen there. Yeah. <laughs> Go more <laughs> kind of like, yeah, mischief. Well, I mean, was there anyone during that care home which, which tried putting you on the right path, but didn't quite, was there anyone like during that time where they could see where you was going and try and intervene to try and put you on that right path in life? 
yeah, yeah, and, and you know, so, so for me, I, I, I was, I, I was destined to be where I was going to be. So if I yeah. some people said, what, 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 what could have made a difference? And for me, when I was two years of age and I was first taken into foster care when my mum left, the truth of the matter is, I should have been adopted at that age. Yeah, if I look at it now, that would have been the 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 the, the, the get out. Uh, maybe the second time when I was five, that could have been. Could have maybe have worked as well. Uh, by the time I got there, I was already on the path, and nothing was going to stop me. Yeah. Um, but what it was was I do remember some kindness. Do you know what I mean? So I had a social worker called Nick Bishop. Uh, he used to make me laugh, yeah, because I used to run away and I'd be sleeping rough in towns and cities across the south of England. And uh, years ago, when the uh, in the eighties, if people went to places like Marwell Zoo or Longley, they'd have little stickers saying, "I've been to Marwell Zoo, I've been to Longley," yeah. and he was going. I'm going to get stickers and say I've been to Bayesian State Police Station, Southampton Police Station, Chichester Police Station, Little Hampton yeah. Police Station. Uh, but he was just always kind of like, um, you know, a bit like that thing. He, he giggled and, you know, tried to help me, but just did it in like a, a, a non-authoritative kind of way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I always remember just good experiences with him. And then there was other staff we used to as well. That's called the staff in some of the children's homes, auntie and uncle. Uh, and there's a staff member called Uncle Stu. Uh, and I still see Uncle Stu today and we go and have breakfast, you know. And yeah. then there was another staff member called Ian Walker. He married a lady called Rona Fitzsimmons. And I still have relationships with these today. So there were people within it, yeah, but yeah. I was literally at a point where I was so damaged that I was just going to go where I was going to go. Yeah. I had a guest on called Mickey Dax and he went to prison. He spoke about like there's a bit of like a, a cutoff point where you need to get in early because as soon as they're in the teenage, like 13, 14, like they're already on that path. Do you agree yeah. there's there's a bit of a cut off there? Like they need to get in young to kind of change that path before it's too late. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, within my professional career, I managed a project called uh, PYOP, Preventing Youth Offending Project. Uh, and we start working with kids at the age of eight. Yeah, and it was really that early intervention stuff where the warning signs were already there, whether they was in education uh, or within the community. So we'd kind of go in and do the intervention there. But the intervention as well wasn't just with a young person. So they'd be referred to us, yeah, because they'd be seen as the problem, yeah. Mm. Uh, but we'd go in and do work with the young people, but then we'd also start to do some work as well with the parents, yeah, and start to kind of get them to also look at what it was that they were doing and how could they could maybe shift their parenting styles that might be able to help as well. So, yeah, the younger the better, you know, but I've got a friend of mine at the moment and he's he was a governor and he's he's gone back to teach him. And he's he's working with like uh, years uh, five and six. He says, "Gif, he says I can look at him in the classroom and think if something's not done there, yeah, we know what's happening, you know." So yeah, so he's exactly right. It needs to be done very early, pre-puberty. Yeah, <laughs> Pre and I think yeah. obviously we'll, we'll definitely get to the, the, the amazing work you obviously you're doing later on in the podcast. But I think you having them experiences, like the kids are going to relate with you where someone who hasn't been through all your journey or been in your shoes and they're not obviously less to kind of relate with right yeah yeah it, it does make it difficult. when i worked in that area earlier because uh it was this few years ago now yeah and uh they didn't like you to be able to share your experience with them oh. but you didn't actually had to actually have to yeah because they just knew that you knew yeah you yeah. just so they'd come out with some kind of like when you just look and go really yeah, yeah, and they just knew that you knew. It's like you can't kid a kidder, so to speak. Yeah, and then they go, "You've done stuff in the past, and I know you have. I know you have." About yeah, <laughs> and then that was enough. <laughs> I mean, you was life behind bars for I think over eight years. You talked about destroying a lot of relationships along the way. I mean, what was life in prison in and out, in and out? I mean, that must have been quite tough, or was it quite hard then getting in the outside world? and that adjusting in some ways you could say yeah so i'm going to quote uh morgan freeman from the shawshank redemption yeah and uh he says a little quote in there he says what happens is uh when people first go to prison they fear the walls then what happens is they then get used to the walls and then eventually they end up depending on the walls and that is exactly the process. So I was in prison when I was 14, 15, 16, 17. I had the year 18 off, yeah, because I got 26 grand compensation, so I didn't need to get in trouble. <laughs> but once the money ran out, yeah, I was back on it again. Yeah. Not away when I was 19, when I was 20, when I was 21, and then I was in and out until the age of 34, yeah. So I wasn't even a successful criminal, yeah. I weren't that great here. I got caught a lot, right? <laughs> uh, 
But the first time I went to prison, I was 14 years of age, and, and that was in 1985. And back in there, it was like called detention centres. Uh, and detention centres were brought in as what they called a short, sharp shock. We're going to scare you straight. Um, and I won't even lie, I was absolutely terrified, yeah, uh, when I kind of got that sentence. And I was literally a 14-year-old child. And I always say child. So I remember when my own son turned 14, I realised just how young I was. And I also already knew young people that had been in that place, yeah. And I knew about the violence, the intimidation and the bullying from both the staff and the other young men. And I can remember driving up to that prison, send detention centre was uh, between uh, Woking and Guildford, and being absolutely terrified, but also knowing I could not show any fear. Yeah, because I'd already learnt from in the care homes and the children's homes that I had to be able to survive in that place. And I, you know, that 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 day is kind of imprinted on my head, you know. And I can remember going in there, and there was men screaming at me, shouting at me. I was stripped naked. I was given a card, M double three six eight one Jones, sir. And it was just all intimidation, yeah. And under every interaction with these men, it was like, if you do not comply, with violence with the outcome, yeah. And it was all like double timing here, running there, it was marching. It was all like, it was It was brutal, absolutely brutal, yeah. There are some uh, black, there are some uh, uh, YouTube video clips of one of them, I was kind of a little look at them, detention centers they were called. Um, but I always say, like, I was broken before I went there, yeah. I was absolutely broken before I went there. And then, like, literally, they snapped me in half, yeah. They snapped me in half, yeah. And, uh, so, and when I mean snapped me in half, it kind of, said to myself you know you know i am never going to trust another living soul yeah i'm the only person i could depend upon was me and i was no longer going to play your game and is this this is all you've got bring it on yeah bring it on yeah because i ain't playing anymore i'm just going and just living my life uh and that was then what just kind of catapulted me off and and what i mean by that when i say catapulted off me off it separated me from society yeah i did not feel like i belonged in society Everybody outside were different to me. They were normal people. You do what you like. I'm not in your world. It's going to be in my world. And then prison sadly became an occupational hazard. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And then very quickly, you know, I'd probably say by the time I was like 16, 17, yeah, going to prison was like putting on an old comfy pair of slippers. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of knew where I yeah. sat. I had like a network of people. I had an identity. I had a reputation. You know, I absolutely knew how the system worked. I could make it used to my advantage. And literally, it just became my life. But as you say, what happened was the change was I wasn't able to cope in the world outside yeah. because I couldn't live in your world. Yeah. Because I didn't know how your world worked because I've never lived in it as an ordinary person, so to speak. Is it because they obviously take away all them responsibilities of day-to-day life? So when you get back in that real world, there's there's no one there to kind of put you on that right path or kind of, yeah, get that responsibilities back kind of thing. Yeah. But, and, and even more so, 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 if we look at looked after children, yes, I'm a care leaver. If looked after children, yes. Uh, I was institutionalized before I actually went to prison. Yeah, because I'd been work, living in a system for years. Yeah, do you know, and children's homes is the only safe thing. They do everything for you. Yeah, everything is done through sort of like case conferences, files. Yeah, they're telling you where you go, what you're going to do, and everything like that. So I was that it was the children the prison just was like a bigger children's home. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you kind of look at how that happens, is uh, if you give nobody responsibility, yeah, you get what's called a learned helplessness. Yeah, so actually, even though you don't like it, you become dependent on it because you don't know how to do anything yourself. And then over a period of time, you become institutionalized. Yeah, and then that's kind of where the problem comes from because you don't know how, you don't know how to live in the world outside. Yeah, you get trapped by the safety and security of what you know. Um, so if I'll give you an example, say as, as proper parenting, yes, I've done a lot of parenting stuff. Yeah, I've worked in all of them services as well. If you think of a mum and dad, yeah, when a child is first born, yeah, that child is completely dependent on whether they that child lives or dies. Yeah? yeah, over a period of time as that child's growing up, it's a process of letting go. Yeah, so you give that child more and more responsibility. Yeah, and let them make their own choices and decisions until hopefully by the time they get to 17, 18, 19, they're ready to move on with the rest of their lives. If you're in children's homes, that experience doesn't happen. And then if you go to prison, it definitely doesn't happen. Yeah. And then what happens is you're putting these people in the world that are ill-equipped uh, without the basic skills and abilities to be able to survive. When you were, when you was in prison, was there any kind of training or kind of education there? 
for you to try and help you on the outside or was that not really put into place or it just wasn't good enough like? I suppose back in the days when I was there, it just yeah. wasn't good enough. Yes, uh, they didn't really have many of the programs. You had some places like Grendon where they had uh, therapeutic communities, but they were only for the very, very serious offenders. Yeah, so yeah. people like myself, which were just pain in the criminal justice's backside. Yeah, there wasn't a lot kind of going for us. Um, but what they would do is you'd be able to go to kind of like uh, education and maybe like get a basic math course or a basic English course, yeah. Uh, you used to always be able to do maybe a basic city and guilds in bricklaying or welding or yeah. stuff like that, yeah. So, But the truth of the matter is, is those kind of qualifications weren't worth nothing, yeah. When you yeah. kind of went out, if you took that to like a welding company and say, I've got this basic welding course, yeah, they just look at you and think, what? Yeah. Do you know, <laughs> it'd take you 12 weeks to get it, you know. It, yeah, it, it yeah. meant nothing, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so really they, they, they were tokenistic, yeah. you know. Um, there is more within the system now. Uh, but then the trouble with the system at the moment is there's not enough staffing to facilitate it. Yeah, so we got a real issue with staffing at the moment, which means actually they do have more programs, they do have more education, they do have more uh, therapeutic work, but because they don't have enough prison officers to run the regime, people yeah. are still just locked up, stuck behind a door doing nothing. What do you mean by therapeutic work? Can we can we talk a bit about that? And um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so if I just explain as well, so now I don't know if I've mentioned it on here, but I was also a dependent heroin user, yeah, so I used to stick needles in my neck, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I can remember on my last sentence when I was doing four years, it was on the old rule, yeah, so you used to have to do two-thirds of that, so it was uh, 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 two years, eight months. Uh, and uh, what happened was... Uh, I kind of thought to myself, well, I need to change something, yeah, because on the end, uh, because this ain't this ain't working too well for me, yeah, because people used to say to me, you need to change, and I'd be like, no shit, Sherlock, I'll stick needles in me neck, yeah. Um, then what happened was I found out they had this drug treatment program, yeah, so in my head, like, I thought to myself, right, if I go onto that course, yeah, and get a handle on the gear, when I get out, I can just sell it and not use it, yeah, yeah. so I only went on the course so I could be a successful criminal, and I also thought to myself, I might also be able to get a bit of parole as well so I can get out yeah. early. Um, little did I realise was what therapeutic meant, yeah? yeah? So what they did very quickly was got into my head, yeah, and started to make me realise that my life wasn't quite normal, yeah, and because uh, people oh, used to say that. that you point. feel? Was that quite scary going back to them kind of memories and, and your upbringing? Was it quite um, traumatic in some ways bringing them emotions back up? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I had to shatter my denial is the only thing to do to explain it, yeah. So what it was, if I, when I went in there, people used to say to me, why do you take drugs? I go, well, just like them, don't I? Yeah. Just like them. Yeah, and they go, no, there's always a reason why. And I used to go, like, yeah, you think that I was abused or something like that. Yeah, yeah. my life is all right. Yeah, so I literally thought, and this is God's honest truth, I thought my life was normal. Yeah, I thought it was completely normal, yeah, and I didn't see anything wrong with it. Yeah. yeah, but that was because I was brought up as I was brought up, and other people were brought up in the same way. So me, yeah. for me, I didn't know any. I was going to say you never saw any different. Like, say if you're like <laughs> product of the environment, if you've been in care homes your whole life, that that's that's your life. So obviously, you don't know how yeah. other kids have been brought up. And and then the mad thing, but when I started to realise it wasn't going right, was because I kind of like they, they'd asked me to kind of share bits of my story, and I share my life, and like people couldn't even feed back because they were just like. Shots. Yeah, and and I'm like, oh, this doesn't seem a bit right, yeah. you know. And uh, so then what happened was, uh, I I so on that treatment centre, on that on that centre, sorry, I done three different po programs on that on that uh, on that centre, but that was because it was too painful. So what happened is I'd go on there, I'd kind of start to dig a little bit deeper, it become so painful that I'd sabotage it and then mm. go back onto like normal regime. But then there was something that kind of gripped inside me that was saying, I need to sort this out. I have to sort this out. I realised now there was a bigger problem. So then I'd go in. It was like, literally, it was like getting in a boxing ring, yeah? yeah. I'd go in and Get kind of have it. another bout with it, yeah. yeah? And then they'd beat me to bits, yeah? And then I'm like, whoa, I'm done, you know? I'm going back on the phrase, you normal regime. And, yeah. and, and I've done that a third time, you know? So, uh, 
Yeah, so, but in but and then I did it when I came out as well. So in total, I've done eight different rehabs. Yeah, eight yeah. rehabs. Yeah, I've done more therapy. You know, you know what to do with. But it was kind of like as if I had to do it layer by layer by layer by layer by layer. So it was just so much of it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like every time it was literally going in for like an emotional, spiritual, and mental punch up with yeah. Muhammad Ali. <laughs> would you say? Would you say you're quite spiritual in some ways? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I've always been spiritual. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've always kind of had that. I've always kind of known somewhere that something was looking after me. Yeah. So yeah. when I said about that compensation, yeah, you just like think, oh my God, this fellow, what's going on? So when I was five years of age, yeah, uh, I got run over by a double decker bus. Yeah. Like literally, yeah. I got run over by a double decker bus. I broke both my legs, uh, fractured my pelvis, one of my arms. Yeah. I got scars in my body like you would not believe. Yeah. yeah. And like literally, they, they said I wasn't going to make it through the night. Yeah, and it was right outside of this church called Sid Michael's Church. Yeah, and uh, and I remember being told this church prayed for me all night. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and I got through. Yeah, and I'm still here today. And then when I look at my drug use and my lifestyle, yeah, I should have died many times. Yeah, and I used to kind of know that something was there, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. Uh, and today I'm not religious, but I am very spiritual and I probably link more to Buddhism and I do like investigate and practice a bit of Buddhism as well. Yeah. Uh, and that for me is kind of like, I believe the universe looks after me for some kind of reason, which is probably why I do the stuff that I do today. Yeah. It's interesting you say that when, like, even when I had Mickey Darts, he, he talks about being spiritual and he had a very similar kind of experience with you. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting how... Yeah, that kind of reflection and kind of looking back and kind of take you on a new path in life. When 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 did you reconnect with your brother then? Obviously, you know, you got, you got taken away. Was you in prison when you reconnected with your brother? No, so uh, uh, so my brother got out of his own just before me. Yeah, uh, so I actually, this is another story I've got. Yeah. Actually. So what happened, I was like, uh, I was in children's homes at 15, yeah, and then me and Mike, yeah, we ended up getting in trouble again. We was 15 years of age. Um, and usually we just get remanded to the care of the local authority. Anyway, social services stood up and said, uh, there's nothing more we can do for him. So rather than get remanded to the care of the local authority, we got remanded to Winchester Prison when we were 15 years of age. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was the first time I went to Winchester, which then became my home until the age of film. So I was 34 the last time I went in there. Um, but then what happened was because I was so young, yeah, I was only 15, they had to literally give me a sentence to take me to my 16th birthday. Yeah. Because I couldn't live independently. Yeah. So yeah. they kept me in prison until I turned 16. Then a few months after my 16th birthday, then kicked me out and put me back into a city I hadn't been to for years. But my brother had been out of care a little while before that. So I reconnected with my brother. Uh, and it was funny because they separated me and my brother because they thought I might take him down the wrong path. Yeah. Uh, literally within six months, I got him his first prison said, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, they were right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that was a funny story as well, though, because like I'd, I, we got into, got into some bother, yeah, and uh, and it was touch and go whether I could get away with it. And then he said, look, Giff, I'll just take the charge, say it was me. He goes, I ain't been in trouble before. I went, oh, brilliant, Dave. Cheers, mate. Um, mm. So anyway, so we took the charge thinking he'd just like get uh, like a community order, and then they locked him up. <laughs> Jesus, but then the funny thing was, yeah. he said when he went to Winchester, he said I loved it when I got to Winchester though because everybody knew that he was my brother, so he was looked after there. He yeah. felt like he was a bit of a king in there. I mean, when you go to prison, like how do you build them? Kind of obviously, you want to stay out of trouble, but obviously, you want to number one stick up for yourself and not try and take any shit. Um, I remember reading a book about um, it was a, a famous professional golfer. And he went to prison and to get by, he taught the prisoners how to play golf. So he had this like skill set. Um, do you need something about you to, to get by, to, to, to get on the right side of the prisoners? Because you don't want to be, yeah, you don't want to be that person getting in trouble yeah. all the time, mate. So, so I suppose what it's been for me, there, there's a couple of things, yeah. So I'm not a naturally a violent person. That's not who I am, yeah. yeah? But I'm very charismatic, yeah, as you can probably say, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm very good with people, yeah. So I had this thing of, like, where the most dangerous people were quite attracted to me, yeah. So yeah. I'd have them around me, yeah, which kind of helps, yeah. Okay, because people are like, well, once you get he's a bit nuts, look at who he's going around with. So yeah. I kind of play on that a little bit, Okay. Um, but then what happened was a couple of times I had this happening in the children's homes and I also happened it when I, when I was in prison. 
there was times, yeah, where actually something had happened, yeah, and there was going to be a violent incident, yeah. It yeah. could not be avoided, yeah. Um, and the only way I can explain that, yeah, was inside of me was absolute fear, yeah, absolute fear, because I'm not a naturally a violent person, yeah, but I also know as well I have to defend, yeah. And I think what happened was that fear was so powerful that on both of them occasions, yeah, I succeeded very easily, yeah. Mm. But actually, what I will say, it was the fear then they because they came at me thinking this is an easy take, yeah. yeah. Whereas I was fighting for me life, but they yeah. didn't know that, and it was that that kind of protected me. Um, so yeah, and and then I was also quite good at like working the system. So there was another time when I was in jail, and there was a bloke yeah that had grasped on me yeah, and you get like what's called deputations yeah. So everybody had seen these statements, they knew it great grasp. So they was like, you've got to do something, get yeah. This is all I need yeah. yeah. Right. So um, so what I did yeah, right, I was out. I got like a toothbrush yeah, I mounted two razors onto this toothbrush yeah, right. And his surname was Knight. I remember like opening up his flat yeah, and just going through the flat. I said, when you come out on association later, I'm gonna open you up yeah, I'm gonna cut you up yeah. So what I was doing was I was filling in with fear. I'm gonna cut you up like that yeah, and then shut the uh, flat yeah. So then what's happened is uh, I've then gone down for association. And they're going, you going to have him, Geff? And I'm going, yeah, yeah. And like, I've got the blade on me. So it's that thing now of like, if he comes down, I've got to do it. All of a sudden, the prison officer's going out, Jones, come here. So I give the blade to the fellow that was next to me. I walked out there and I've gone, what have you done tonight? Yeah, he's putting himself on protection and says that you're going to uh, you're going to cut him off. Said, yeah, if he comes down here, I'll do him rotten. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's happened? I've then got my credibility with everybody around me, but I've also avoided. So, uh, so yeah. I was I think I was just quite good at being able to survive and and do what I needed to do. Yeah, I think you need that as well. I can imagine if you if you're in this situation, like yeah, you've got to stand up for yourself and maybe put on um, put on a I don't I don't know what the word is like put on this kind of like persona to, to, to get you through that kind of time. I mean, you, I mean, by the end of it, I imagine everybody knew you anyway, so you wouldn't have to yeah. keep putting on this whole persona every time you went in. Like. No. And, and, and the thing is, is them situations I'm talking about there were in the youth estate. So that was in the young for, so that was be yeah. when you used to, we used to be locked up up until the age of 21, it was in the youth estate with the youth estate. Yeah. With, with anything, it's a lot of people boss just jostling for uh, status. Yeah. Where you mm. fit. So there's a lot more violence in the young person's prison estate than what there is in the adults. By the time you got to adults, things were a little bit more settled, yeah. But if you do get violence, it's usually quite extreme, but it's not as regular, yeah. And exactly that same thing. I was so used to being in the system and so many people knew me in the system. By that point, I didn't have to do that anymore, yeah. So life then just became very easy easy because people knew who i was i knew where other people were we knew where we kind of fitted and it just kind of worked yeah and what was that turning point for you was it the relationships you had within the prison where you met a counselor would you say that was like your turning point in your life to some degree yeah, so I suppose really that there, there has to be sort of like the, the hook first, yeah. So when I was in the yeah. treatment program, yeah, uh, and people used to say to me I used to need to change, but I didn't know what I needed to change into. People always take the word, bad, the word rehabilitation. But rehabilitate means you make something what it once was. What if it never was? What are you rehabilitating that to? Yeah. So I never really had a vision of where it was I needed to go. Yeah, so what happened was when I was on that first uh, treatment program, they said, Geth, we need you to come and listen to this fellow speak. And I remember walking in and looking at this bloke and thinking, what do you know about me, mate? What do you know about my life? Yeah. And then he started to share his story. And when he shared his story, yeah, I identified with his story. And then he talked about his new life. And he talked about he had a flat, he had a family, he had a job, he went on holidays, he had a passport, he had a bank account, he had all this normal stuff. I remember my jaw it in the floor. I didn't think that stuff was possible for people like me. So I call that hope, and hope stands for me, and I've got a program which I'm named after another gentleman that had the same experience, a bloke called Jamie, who's an IPP prisoner, and hope stands for hearing other people's experiences. Yeah, that's what hope is. And that's where I first saw the vision. So it was then that then pushed me on to other areas. Yeah, so I then went down to Earl Stoke Prison, and I met a gentleman called Harry, and uh, Harry was an ex 
prisoner from America uh, and also was an intravenous dependent heroin user as well. And he developed a human to human relationship with me within that prison. Yeah, where I was able to start to develop some trust with him that and then enabled me to look deeper at myself. Uh, but also as well, because I was on a little bit of a therapeutic community, there was just 16 of us on there. Uh, I also had a, a prison officer called Stuart Degville, who was my, uh, uh, you called them um, back in them days, personal officers. Uh, and I started to develop a relationship with him as well. And then those two relationships with them were kind of supported and helped me to kind of move to the next, uh, next step in more kind of uh, change, if you want to call it that. I've still got relationships with Stuart and um, the staff like no, so uh, uh, so Stuart sadly left the prison system. So I've met one of his colleagues down at Old Soap Prison, yeah. uh, a bloke called Nick. Uh, and Nick sort of like heard about all the stuff that I've been doing. I've also been down to Old Soap Prison. And he's just like, my God, yeah, yeah. you know, because he kind of remembers Pretty you from there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but Stuart Stuart retired and he kind of went off in another kind of world. But I do have a belief that at some stage, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll bump into him for one reason or another. It will kind of happen because... The universe has that sort of stuff. That's yeah. how it kind of works. Uh, but Harry, uh, I met Harry, uh, oh, I must have been about 12 years ago now. Uh, I was down in Bristol and there was this bit of a convention going on in celebrating recovery. And I just heard this being American action. And I <laughs> yeah. thought, Harry. Yeah. Sorry, and, yeah. uh, and what it was, was then when Harry was leaving when I was there as well, we got like a group picture. And I still got the group photo as well with Harry Sue. Um, and I wrote a poem. Yeah, and we had this picture put on it, and he said, "He goes, I've still got your poem framed, and it's on the wall yeah. as well." So, yeah, yeah, that was magical. That that sort of stuff's magical. That's amazing. I mean, from your experience, obviously being in and out of prison, what do you think the main thing what needs to change in regards to kind of the justice system? Uh, so the main thing that needs to change, yeah, is the public. Uh, it's the public, yeah. So the public uh, needs to realise and understand what the true purpose of prison is. Uh, so a lot of people at the moment, they're still of that mindset that prison's primary purpose is to punish people, yeah, to punish people. But actually, the punishment is the loss of liberty. That's the punishment, yeah. So if we think about when we was at COVID, yeah, and we all kind of got locked in, yeah, we all understood what it was like to lose your liberty and being separated from your family, your friends, and your support network. We all understand what that sounds like now, it sounds, it feels like now. That's that's the punishment. So prison's primary purpose should be about therapy, education, rehabilitation, and support to help people change and live better kind of lives. At the moment, we're failing in that. Yeah, we're failing. Yeah. So what happens is the justice system will say we put people in prison to keep community safe. Yeah. But what I say is actually prisons now are making communities more unsafe. Yeah, because less than one percent of the prison population is never getting out. They're all getting out at some point. Yeah. Mm. So if we're not giving them the therapeutic support, we're not giving them the education, the rehabilitation and opportunities when they leave prison, then actually they're coming back to your communities and your communities are going to become more unsafe mm. because reoffending rates are just rising every single year. Yeah. Building more prisons is not the answer. Yeah, it's funny. I was watching a documentary last night. It's, it's on BBC iPlayer, Detectives OCJ, and it talks about the, um, I think, is it not Halifax? I'm trying to think now. Rochdale, about the gangs in Rochdale. And um, it was saying in regards to obviously like the, the criminal rates of theft and everything is just off the scales at the minute and violence and kind of thing. And it's just kind of like 360. And even when I've um, had other guests on the podcast who've been in prison, I feel like they're in and then they're back out, they're in and they're back out kind of thing. So there's there's no kind of support in there to kind of stop them wanting to go back in. Like. Right. But then also as well, there's another issue as well. So you've got that bit, yeah, okay, which is the situations now, yeah. But then you've got to look upstream, yeah. So imagine yeah. it, yeah, people are falling in a river, yeah. And then what the justice system is trying to do is pull them out of the river, yeah. But what it is is you want to have a look at where they're falling in the river, yeah. yeah? And the falling in the river is the early interventions, Paul, yeah. So if you think about it, we know all of the postcodes that feed our prison. Yeah, and I use London as an example. They're the places they're coming from, sort of like uh, uh, Hackney. Do you know what I mean? They're coming from like Bruce, and they're coming from all of them real areas of deprivation. Yeah, where there's high levels of drug use, gang use, and everything else like that. Okay, what we also know as well is eighty percent of young men in prison. Yeah, eighty percent come from fatherless families. Yeah, so there's wow. no father involved. Yeah, 
So what it is, is you've got no father, you've got instability at home. Because of the instability at home, guess what we're doing here? We're kicking them out of school because they're not achieving in school and reaching the age C grades, blah, 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 yeah, the mm -hmm. curriculum. So then what happens is they're then going out onto the communities and in the streets, yeah, and everyone feels they need to belong. We all want to belong somewhere, yeah? So that's when gangs become, look, attractive, yeah? Because there's the belonging there, yeah? Somebody feels attached and they're going to belong to something. And then also as well, what they're seeing is all of these ones in the gangs are the only ones that are driving around in nice cars, got money, clothes, and all of yeah. that sort of stuff. So we got a societal issue that's going on here as well, yeah? So we need to change the purpose of what prison is, but we also need to do the early intervention support up here in relation to stopping people coming into the system, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it's incredible, obviously, the work you're doing now with Unlocking Potential. I mean, how long have you been doing that? And did that obviously, obviously came out from your experience and wanting to change it? Yeah, so it, it, it so, so I feel I'll just explain. So I turned my life around in uh, 2006. Yeah, at that point in my life, I had uh, uh, 56 offences, 18 convictions, eight years behind a prison wall. I had no qualifications. I was been an intravenous dependent heroin user. It wasn't great looking CV, and nobody was queuing up to give me a job. Mm. All right. Yeah. Uh, but within a seven year period, I went from two hours a week volunteering to seven years later being a service manager within Portsmouth City Council and Public Health, overseeing a staff team of 40 years to reduce health inequalities to the most deprived area of the city I grew up within. I was also holding a one and a half million pound a year budget yeah, to manage that service. Okay. Um, what I did when I was during that time was I really kind of understood myself as an individual, a person where my skill sets was in relation to not just helping people that are trapped within the system, but also training and developing staff so they can better engage with those people that they sometimes deem as hard to reach. I struggled with the word hard to reach because actually we sometimes make it harder for them to reach us because mm -hmm. of systems, processes, bureaucracy and all of that sort of stuff. So kind of what happened was uh, about six years ago, uh, even though I had this really good, well-paid job, I just felt there's something more I could do. Yeah, I wanted to do something more. So that was when like I set up. Unfulfilled in some ways, because obviously money money helps a degree. And I imagine it's amazing. Obviously, like you're in this high rolling job now. You're working a massive team over 150. Money's there and you can afford to do whatever you want. But it just wasn't enough. Or was it always that kind of like in a thought in the back of your head? No, it, was, it wasn't enough, yeah. So what it was, I just felt everything I was doing was a token gesture, yeah. Mm. So actually, you know, oh, I had a good lifestyle, yeah, I, I was doing all right, yeah. You know, my job was quite easy because, you know, it, it, but I didn't feel like I was actually having a real benefit on the people that needed the help and support, yeah. It was very tokenistic. So that's why I felt there was more that I needed to do. Uh, I also as well uh, lost my brother. Uh, he was only in his early 40s to lung cancer. Um, and not long after that, I also lost my best friend uh, that sort of like went back into the drug world, yeah. Um, and before that, I'd already lost Mike, yeah. Uh, and he took his life in Winchester Prison. Yeah, so I just kind of, I had all of this sort of stuff that there was, there, you know, when you have all these sort of things happen, it makes you kind of, ask questions about Question, yourself yeah. you know, your purpose and all that sort of stuff so i just knew that i wanted to do something more and then i also realized about that point during that point through conversations that sort of like you know prison staff were becoming very very disillusioned yeah because they felt nobody was changing and the reason for that is is because they didn't see their successes because they don't come back through the gate yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> so that was where it kind of started. The journey started of me going into prisons and doing presentations to prison staff through all staff briefs and then starting to do some training with prison officers about what I called the seeds of belief, yeah, about how they can be the person that sows the beliefs to support change that can help somebody move forward in the future. Uh, and then that then kind of adapted and then I started to create some uh, training programs called the Art of Communication, which was about how to build their relationships. And then I started to deliver uh, personal responsibility and change programs to the prisoners. Yeah, and that was about also getting them to learn how to trust a system they fundamentally mistrusted. And then that just kind of grew. Yeah, just kind of grew. You know, so I do consultation work as a lived experience consultant about how to create a system that's fit for purpose and fairest rule. Uh, I've recently just come back from Australia, working in the prison in Australia and doing some stuff with their uh, community corrections. Uh, and in February, I'm off to work in three different prisons in America, you know, oh. one in Florida, one in uh, uh, Texas and one in Arizona, you Amazing. know, so, and like I mean, six what? years ago, I mean, just tell you this quick, six yeah. years ago, 
my first customer was 200 meters away from my house. Yeah. <laughs> Six years later, they're flying me around the other side of the world to do it. That's amazing. I mean, what is the difference then between kind of the US prison and the UK prison? Is it, is it, or Australia prison, for example, is, is there a massive difference when you, when you find that you go to these different countries and you kind of see how their prisons are run in comparison to the UK? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like you say, so I haven't been in the American prison. I've done consultancy work, so I'd have to kind yeah. of give you an update on that one before. But yeah, you may be a bit, bit shocked by this, but uh, Australian prisons are probably about 20 years behind where we are. Yeah, wow. they're about, yeah. Uh, back in the UK, back in the 80s, 90s, yeah, uh, early 90s. Uh, there used to be a saying by prison officers and it was like, give them fuck all and plenty of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much what it's like in uh, Australia. They're all crims and they're no good and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is at the moment, there's very little lived experience within the Australian system. That's something that I'm trying to kind of push and kind of uh, breed over there. Um, but also as well, you know, is the, uh, they, 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 they've, they've got the staffing levels to run regimes but they don't have the right programs to be able yeah. to help people to say to move forward. So yeah, there's a bit of work to do over there. Yeah. And you think the main thing in the UK you've kind of spoke about is, is we need more kind of staff and obviously the training is just not there in terms of like building these kind of relationships with the prisoners. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of work to be able to be able to. So I, I, I'm, I'm really kind of like looking at sort of more of the consultation work in relation to the yeah. prison system at the moment. Yeah. So uh, I always quote, um, and I can't even remember his name now, uh, but he was one of the most uh, intelligent men in the world. And what he said was like uh, the definition of insanity. Einstein, it was. Yeah, Einstein. Yeah. Uh, he said the definition of uh, the definition of an insanity is to keep doing exactly the same thing, expecting a different result. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The justice system has been doing that for so long. Mm. We keep on doing the wrong thing for the right reason. And the reason we're doing the wrong thing is because we're not speaking to the right people. We don't truly understand the problem. Once we start to speak to the right people and truly understand the problem, then we can create the right solution that's going to help maybe shift and change the system so it to become a better kind of place. So there's a lot of complexities involved in that. Uh, and I just kind of want to be uh, part of the conversation within it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I do believe, same like with prison staff, just as an example, a prison officer starts to finish his 12-week training. 12 weeks of training when you're thinking about the complexities of what living there. For me, I believe a prison officer should be trained in a social work model. Yeah, okay, yeah. because you're still socially working with people and they need to understand more about what's happened to people, their life and everything like that, and how to be able to better engage with them. Yeah. And what's next for unlocking potential? Obviously, you've kind of spoken there, you're flying out to America and Australia. I mean, you must have some like grand plans. I saw that you do quite a few different courses as well aimed at kind of the prisons as well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I've got a few different plans. There's always a plan. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to continue with the consultancy work. Uh, in relation to that, uh, a lot of the programs that I'm doing are, are going to start to license them. Uh, so people buy them as licenses because uh, next year I'm kind of calling it my farewell tour. Uh, so next year will be my last year of going and delivering stuff within prisons. Uh, mm. And the reason for that is on the 23rd of January, it would be 39 years ago that I first went into a prison. Wow. So I've been going in in one way or another for 39 years. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've done more time. <laughs> You've yeah. done, done your bit now, yeah. Done my bit, yeah. So yeah. on the 23rd of January, 2025, that'll be 40 years and that'll be me done. So I'm just doing that side of it. Um, but I, everything I do is what I call human-to-human -human relationships, yeah, and also human-to-human -human leadership. Uh, so next year, I plan to create in personal development programs uh, that are going to be done through e-learning. Uh, but I'll also be looking at doing like workshops, uh, keynotes and other sorts of stuff like that. And what I say to people is we all get trapped and stuck sometimes in life. If I can turn people's lives around from them backgrounds, imagine what I could do for you.